It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. This week, our guest is once again, someone that you may know or know of, but hopefully uh, we can learn something new or at least better understand how and why this person wound up doing what he did and getting where he got in life. And our guest this week is Dr. Ben Carson. So first of all, doctor, thank you for joining us and I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being a patriot. We appreciate you. Well, you're kind to say that. We we think we know who we are to the extent you can know who someone is. We think we know who you are. We think we know what you have achieved in life, which has been pretty remarkable. But I want you to take us back to the beginning. I give us an idea of what a young, not yet Dr. Ben Carson was like. Well, uh, I was a nice kid, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in Detroit and partly in Boston. And uh, actually, actually, I sort of go through it in, in my new book. Um, but I remember uh, living in a very, uh, I guess, homogenous neighborhood. Uh, It was a black neighborhood. I went to black schools, black churches. I really didn't have much in the way of interactions with other people until I moved to Boston. And uh, that changed dramatically there. That was, that was the first time, you know, I really saw that there was a difference uh, that meant something to people. And then later on, we moved back to Detroit and I was a terrible, terrible student. Uh, but I had a mother, and that was really the key. My mother had only less than a third grade education, got married at age 13, leaving rural Tennessee, a humongous family, and uh, discovered that her husband was a bigamist, so she had to raise us by herself with little education, but she never, ever, accepted excuses for herself or from us. And if we ever made an excuse, the next thing out of her mouth was a poem called Yourself to Blame. And the question, do you have a brain? And if the answer was yes, then you could have thought your way out of it. It doesn't matter what somebody else did. Your life is not dependent on other people. That was sort of her theme. And uh, she made us read books. And I didn't like it very much in the beginning. Like everybody else, I wanted to just watch TV. But uh, she made us read books. All of her friends always criticized her. They said, they're going to grow up and hate you. And I would overhear them. I would say, you know, they're right, mother. But uh, (laughs) we had to do it anyway. And, uh, you know, one son became a brain surgeon and one became a rocket scientist. So I think maybe she had the last laugh in that. Uh, But teaching us not to accept excuses not to make excuses, uh, meant that 
you had to find solutions. And I think that's probably why I had the medical career that I had. You know, it didn't phase me when somebody would say, well, you can't do that or no one's done that before. Uh, no one's ever done anything until someone does it. So, <laughs> you know, that's not a good reason not to do something. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that God gave us these amazing brains that were made in the image of God. And uh, we should use them in an appropriate way to be beneficial to those around us. Doc, that was a beautiful introduction. I can barely get over what I think I heard you say, which is your mother married at the age of 13. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So my guess is that all of the educational opportunities that you had afforded to you because you had a mother that pushed you, she did not have afforded to her. That's exactly right. But, but she was uh, a very wise person probably the wisest person I've ever met. And, you know, she worked as a domestic. She didn't have skills to do much. But in the homes that she cleaned, she observed that they didn't watch a lot of TV and they read a lot of books. And she said, I think that has something to do with their success. And uh, therefore she came home and imposed that on me and my brother. We were not happy, as you might imagine. We were uh, quite disgruntled in today's society. We would have called social services and said she was abusing us. <laughs> but it turned out to be obviously very, very good abuse. And I'll tell you about her. You know, she, she couldn't read, even though she made us give her book reports. We didn't know she couldn't read them. She'd put little check marks and underlines and stuff. And we thought she was reading them. But um, she went on and got her GED. Wow. And she got her GED the same year that I graduated from high school. Wow. So, <laughs> and you and she, your mom got a <laughs> high school diploma. This, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and then she uh, went on to college. And in 1994, she got an honorary doctorate degree. So she was Dr. Carson too. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is an um, You know, I... I did not turn out the way you turned out, but I was sitting there thinking my father only let us watch 30 minutes of television a week. And so, you know, you could watch happy or days, but not happy days. <laughs> you could watch Gilligan or the Island, but not both. But I mean, literally 30 minutes. And I, I, I remember, and it used to drive me nuts. He would tell me to go read the encyclopedia. Because I was bored. I mean, you couldn't play sports at night. That's all I right. wanted to do. Read the dictionary and read the encyclopedia. And I did hate it. But honestly, I don't know what I would have gotten from watching television. So, I mean, it is fun and it's, and it's mindless. But your mom must have had a wisdom um, and, and unhuman wisdom to see the value in books, even if she couldn't read herself. And she had great, great faith in God. And, uh, and I think she passed that on to us as well. That was so important to me and so many difficult times in my life. Uh, and knowing that somehow we were going to get through it. And uh, I am saddened when I see our nation moving away from its faith. That was such an important part of who we were. And, uh, you know, our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, 
talks about certain unalienable rights given to us by our Creator. Yes, sir. AKA God. The Pledge of Allegiance to our flag says, One nation under God. Every coin in our pocket, every bill in our wallet says, In God we trust. And I think that was one of the reasons for our enormous success. We went from a ragtag bunch of militiamen to the pinnacle of the world in record time, and no one could understand it. And yet, I think there's a very good explanation. And as we move away from it, look what's happening to our society. Look at how it's rapidly deteriorating. I don't think it's too late for us to reclaim that greatness by just looking at some of the things that made us great. That's what American Cornerstone is all about, those principles of faith and liberty, community and life. It was no accident that we became a great nation. And we can reclaim that again. And it's also so important for us to realize that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. We're being manipulated. You know, white people are being manipulated into feeling guilt. And if they feel guilt, then they won't say anything. When you do things like defund the police or when you let criminals out to wreak havoc on our society or when you totally disregard our southern border and say, oh, it's safe. Um, and they just stand quietly by with their head down and hope no one calls them a nasty name. That's what you're trying to achieve. And then with minorities, particularly blacks, you try to get them to believe that they're victims and that the system is systemically racist and that they don't have a chance to be successful, all of which is completely untrue, of course. But we must rail against that. We must present the other side help people to realize that this is a, a land of tremendous opportunity. And, uh, you know, we, we have to work on that. I'm going to ask you about the Declaration of Independence in just a second, but I, I am always fascinated by it. What I had a professional golfer with me a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I want you to tell me when you realized that you were better than the rest of us at golf. So I'm going to ask you, when did you realize that you were better than the rest of us at math and science? Well, I think it was in the fifth grade, I started reading those books. I read all the animal books and all the plant books, and I started reading about rocks. Now, I was still the dummy in the class. Everybody called me dummy. That was my nickname. But one day, the, the fifth grade science teacher came in and held up a big black shiny rock and he says, does anybody know what this is? Well, I never raised my hand and never answered any questions, but no one knew. And I knew what it was. So I raised my hand and everybody turned around. They couldn't believe I had my <laughs> hand up. They said, this is going to be so good. They knew it was going to be a hilarious answer. And I said, Mr. Jake, that's obsidian. And there was silence in the room because it sounded good. Nobody knew whether it was right or wrong. <laughs> and finally, he broke the science. He said, that's right. And I went on to explain how obsidian was formed and where it came from. And everybody was just, their mouths were hanging open. They couldn't believe all this information. But I was the most amazed person in the room because I said, you know, the reason you knew that answer and no one else knew is because you were reading those books. 
I said, what if you read books about all your subjects? Can you imagine what the impact would be? From that point on, you never saw me without a book. If I had five minutes, I was reading a book. And over the course of the next year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. And that's when I began to recognize that, you know, my future was in my own hands. It wasn't in the hands of other people. It wasn't in the hands of the environment. I stopped listening to all those naysayers who said the society is stacked against you. And my brother stopped listening to them too. We just said, forget about all that stuff. And let's think about what we can do and what a difference it makes when you adopt that attitude. All right. So you answered a question correctly about a rock and then wound up operating on brains. That seems like a fairly long journey. So at some point you had to go from getting the right answer about a rock to saying, I am going to operate on the most complex structure on earth. When did you realize, you know what, I'm actually smart enough to be a brain surgeon? And when did you decide that's what you wanted to do? Well, that really wasn't until I was in medical school. When I went to medical school, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be a psychiatrist. I had made it in psychology at Yale, had fantastic professors, people like Anna Freud, the daughter of Sigmund Freud. I was really into it. And then in medical school, I started listening to some of those lectures that the neurosurgeons gave, the stuff that they did. It was just out of this world. And I said, whoa, I really like that. And I started moving in that direction. And people were even then saying, you know, that's not the right direction for you. At that time, there had been eight Black neurosurgeons in the history of the world. And uh, people said, that's not the right field for you. But I'll tell you a secret. When God distributes talent, he doesn't do it by race. And I took to neurosurgery like a duck does to water. It was just almost like a natural. I always knew what to do, how to do it, even without reading the books. And uh, it made a big difference. Wait right there. We'll have more next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that you've maybe never been asked before in your life. And I don't remember where I heard this, but it was from one of my friends that is a surgeon. Do left-handed people make better brain surgeons or right-handed people? Does it matter what your dominant hand is when you're operating on the brain? Uh, it, It doesn't matter. But most neurosurgeons, and certainly I did, uh, learn to be ambidextrous. Otherwise, you have to keep walking around the table. (laughs) 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 That doesn't work very well. And and you learn to think also uh, in three dimensions. Let's see everything in three dimensions. Because when you're operating on the brain, it doesn't have a lot of anatomical structures in it. And yet, 
there are all kinds of tracks and fibers and nuclei and things in there. And you must be able to maintain in, in your thinking where all those things are, even though everything looks pretty much the same. You have to know that this tract is running here and this tract is running here and this nucleus sits right between them, even though you don't see anything. You never thought about being like an orthopedic surgeon where the margin for error is a little bit greater or, <laughs> uh, or psychiatry. The margin for error is pretty big there. Well, you know, I know some great orthopods and some great psychiatrists that may make great contributions in their own way. <laughs> when you look at the brain and the complexity of the brain, does it make you more doubtful in your faith or more resolute in your faith? Well, definitely more resolute in our faith. You know, we were made in the image of God, and you take a human brain and you put it next to an animal brain, let's say a dog, the surface topography is quite similar. Frontal lobes, temporal lobes, occipital lobes, parietal lobes, brainstem, cerebellum, midbrain. But that dog's midbrain is much better developed than ours. Midbrain allows you to react. Animals react much faster than we do, cat-like reflexes. But we have big, well-developed frontal lobes where you engage in rational thought processing. We're able to extract information from the past, integrate it with information from the present, project it into the future so that we can plan a year ahead, 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead. We can start laying the foundation today for what we plan to do in a decade. Animals generally are not able to do anything even close to that but they are able to react very quickly and they're designed to do that. But things like critical race theory teach our children to act like animals, to look at a person's skin and to make a determination about them based on that, as opposed to using those higher cerebral functions that allow you to analyze the content of their character. That's what Dr. King meant when he said he looked forward to the day when people will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of our skin. Teaching our children to act like animals with critical race theory and similar uh, things is criminal. All right. I want to ask you, you made reference to our Declaration of Independence, which is a really, really aspirational document. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That one of the most aspirational lines ever drafted by the gentleman from Virginia. But yet we didn't codify that in the Constitution. We, we, in fact, took that aspiration, and we did not at the time consider Tim Scott and me to be equal. And right. it took a long time. And, and I wonder, I mean, we are 200 years removed plus from that. Will there come a time where we, you quoted Dr. King, where we will just simply judge people by the content of the character? Because I, I do think we're better, and Tim, you know, beats into my head that we are far better off 
even then when, then when he and I were born, than when you were born. Oh, absolutely. And there's no question about it. And, you know, I go through the whole history and uh, create it equal. Uh, the book that's coming out in a few days uh, from the 1500s until the current time and just in my lifetime. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was a big deal when a black person came on TV in a non-servile role. You called everybody in, hey, come and see this. It was a big deal. And now in the same lifetime, you have black generals and admirals and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and heads of foundations and university presidents, including Ivy Leagues. We've elected a black president twice. We have a black vice president. I mean, to sit here and say that we're not making progress and that we have a systemically racist society doesn't make any sense. You know, if it's a systemically racist, why would people of different races be forming caravans to try to get in here? And when they got in here, wouldn't they be calling all their relatives and saying, don't come here. This is a systemically racist place. None of that is happening. And, and what we have are people who want to fundamentally change our society. And they're trying to get people to not pay attention to what their eyes tell them or what their ears tell them. Just listen to them. You mentioned life, the Supreme Court. There was a draft opinion by Justice Alito that was leaked. I have no idea whether that will ever become the law or not. but. Uh, the issue of abortion, it seems to me, statistically has hurt or impacted uh, communities of color. Of course, uh, w- w- you know, wor- worse than 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 white folks. But but there is a reluctance. To your point, there's a reluctance to talk about that because there's a reluctance on behalf of white people to talk about things that impact communities of color. So ha- right. should we get beyond that, and how do we get beyond that? Well, it's important that we know the history, uh, that Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Uh, she thought that the society could, should only consist of, of certain people. She was a hero in Nazi Germany and uh, founded the Planned Parenthood. And you'll notice that most of those clinics are in communities of color because that's the best way to keep that population under control by controlling their numbers. And a lot of people don't actually know that. And it's very sad. And, you know, when it comes to what's going on with the Supreme Court right now, this is, this is a very important uh, issue. First of all, the leak. How does something like that happen in an institution that's supposed to be non-biased? It introduces an element of distrust, which will take a very long time to repair if it ever can be repaired. And why would people like that be in there? People who actually in their own minds are righteous and can do anything because their cause is righteous. It's the same kind of thinking that the jihadists have. When we introduce that into our institutions that are supposed to uh, consider justice for all, 
you see we may be in for a significant problem. We need to be thinking about that now. And then uh, it is actually a good thing, I think, that we're moving toward putting decisions of life and death in the hands of the people, which is where it was supposed to be. That's how our system was designed, not in the hands of, of nine justices who are not answerable to the people. It doesn't make any sense. And the people who are railing against this with everything in them, obviously are not supportive of that system that was created to provide liberty and justice and freedom for all. All right, you had a pretty good life, it seemed to me. You, you know, world-renowned neurosurgeon. What in the world possessed you to want to get involved in public policy, uh, serve in the highest levels of government, run to be the leader of the free world? I mean, it. I, I look at my friends that are doctors and I think, well, I know why you didn't go into politics because you didn't have to, because you could have done something else. But now I'm actually seeing more and more physicians who are getting involved in public policy. What, what led you to do it? Well, you know, I had no intention of, of doing it, quite frankly. But uh, in 2013, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, which I thought was a strange request because I had been the keynote speaker in 1997 when President Clinton was in office. And I didn't know that anyone ever did it twice. Research demonstrated that there was one person who did it twice, and that was Billy Graham. And I said, well, that's pretty good company. It is good company. Uh, you know, I gave the speech, and afterwards, you know, there was an explosion of people saying, you should run for president. And I said, good, give me a break. You know, this is ridiculous, run for president. Why would I do that? Uh, I said, if I ignore these people, will it go away? But it didn't go away. It kept getting worse. Every place I went, there were people with placards, run, been run. I had over 500,000 petitions in my office. I could barely get in there for all the boxes of petitions. And I finally said, Lord, you know, this is not something I want to do. But if you really want me to do it, you could give me all the stuff that a person who runs for president has, a Rolodex with all the important names, an organization a lot of money. I said, I don't have all those things, nor do I plan to develop them. So if you want me to do it, you're going to have to supply that. The next thing I knew, we had a complete organization. We were raising more money than the RNC. It was ridiculous. And uh, so it was an incredible experience running for president. And one of the things that I really uh, discovered is that the people of America, for the most part, have common sense. In the smallest hamlets of Mississippi or North Dakota, they have common sense. Uh, somehow, it seems to be lost by a lot of people in Washington, D.C. It seems, or at least it was when I was there, and my friends tell me it's even worse, like a really divisive line of work now. There's a lot of acrimony, uh, very, very, very partisan. I guess, number one, I would ask you, is that healthy? Number two, if you wanted to make it more contrast-oriented and less conflict-oriented, what do the elected officials need to do differently? And then what do those of us who are just simply citizens need to do differently? Because to me, Doc, it just seems like 
the current path of conflict is unsustainable. I love contrast, but the the acrimony just seems unsustainable to me. Well, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus said it first. It was echoed by Abraham Lincoln. It is absolutely true. And the, the solution lies with we the people. You can't expect the government to fix this because governments do what governments do. And they're, they're not necessarily evil. They're governments. Just like a lion is not evil because it kills gazelles and eat them. That's what they do. And governments grow, they infiltrate, and they dominate. That's what they do. That's why our founders worked so hard to give us a constitution so that the people would have a tool to control the government. And if you ignore that tool, if you don't use that tool appropriately, the government will get out of hand very, very quickly. And you can see how quickly things change just during the COVID situation to try to give government control over our lives, which they want to continue. And what the people can do is make sure that they know who they're voting for. Understand those people. Don't just go into the booth and look for a name that looks familiar. That's what a lot of people do. They look for a name that they know. It could be Satan. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I know that one. Uh, That doesn't work. And we have very defined things going on right now. There was a vote, for instance, yesterday um, in the Senate. We know who says you can kill babies right up until the time they're born. We know who says there shouldn't be a need for parental uh, permission. You know, we, we need to inform ourselves of who these people are and ask ourselves, is that what we want? Is that what we agree with? And vote accordingly. That's how you solve a problem. That's how our country was designed. But it doesn't work if you don't get active and do your part. Sit tight. We'll have more of this interview after this. All right. Speaking of doing your part, you've actually written more books than most of my friends have read. But you've got another one out. I wish that weren't true, Doc, but it actually is true. Uh, How many have you written now? Uh, This was my 11th book. Yeah, well, you, you, yeah, you've written a lot more than most. You've written more than all my friends put together have read. <laughs> what caused you, as a physician trained in medicine, this is, this is con law. This is, this, this is, there, there are legal aspects to this. So what led you to write this book? Uh, well, I was very concerned about what's happening to our country about the way that people are using the race issue as a cudgel uh, to beat people into submission and using it very inappropriately. So I wanted to set the record straight. I wanted to go back and really write the history of race relationships in our country since the 1500s and how it has impacted us and what incredible progress has been made, where more progress needs to be made, what things we need to consider, the role of the media. You know, you you look at the George Floyd incident and how the media tried to make it seem like this was a common occurrence. Well, we put the actual statistics in there 
And you can see the last year we had good statistics to 2018. Uh, per the Washington Post, there were less than two dozen incidents of black men, unarmed black men being shot by white policemen with over 50 million police civilian interactions. So you can see it's incredibly rare. Now, every one of those is a tragedy and needs to be dealt with appropriately. But to say that this is a common occurrence, that this is indicative of a systemic problem, uh, you can see that that simply isn't true. And there are people who are trying to use these things in an attempt to change who we are as a society. And you have to create massive dissatisfaction for people to want to change who they are, to change the kind of society that we have. And we have to fight against that. We have the most incredible country. I've visited 68 countries. I've lived overseas. There is no place like America. And some people get irritated when I say things like that. They're saying, you're saying that black people are better off here than they would be in Africa where they came from? Well, no, what I'm saying is that everybody, I don't care where they came from, which part of the world they came from, they're better off here than they would have been where they were before. And we've all created that atmosphere together. This country belongs to all of us and we need to fight hard to preserve it. Your book comes out, what, less than a week? The 17th of May, uh, but it can be pre-ordered uh, anywhere that books are sold. And uh, so far, the preliminary stats look very good. Uh, how long did it take you to write it? Uh, a few months, uh, although I've been thinking about it for a very long period of time. And, uh, you know, my, my wife worked with me. She, she does most of the research. She's a very good researcher. And, uh, you know, we've done our last several books together. I wouldn't even consider doing a book without my wife anymore. Well, that is the most impressive thing you have said, because I've had a hard time getting my wife to read my books. There's not a <laughs> chance in the world that she would sit down and write a book with me. So do you know Lindsey Graham? I know him well, yes. He's got a, he's, He's not going to write a book. He's going to do a book of pictures. It's going to be his life in pictures is what he wants to do because I don't, I've tried to get him to write a book. You know what? The last time I play golf with him and cause you and I both like him as a person, even though we may not agree with everything he's ever done. Right. We're on the tee box. And I said, I, have you read? And I was going to ask him about a book and he stopped me and said, any sentence that begins, have you read? The answer is no. So <laughs> he did not, he did not grow up with your mother forcing him to read books, or maybe if he had, he would have turned out, he would have turned out better. All right, Dr. Ben Carson, you got spare time. What do you do with it? I love when I'm relaxing to play pool. Really? And yeah. I, it's just very relaxing to me. And my wife has become a very good pool player. She didn't play pool at all when we got married, but she said, I see I'm going to have to play pool if I'm going to have quality time with you. <laughs> all right. What does the future hold for you? And I know, I, I know you're going to answer. You don't know, but you know who holds the future. You're going to give me, you're going to tell me what my grandmother used to tell me. But <laughs> are there, 
Are there goals you still have left? Are there things that you would like to do that you have not yet done? I would like to be engaged with saving our country. I think we that the United States of America is so important to the world. And before we became a world power, there were all these despotic leaders trampling on anybody who was weaker than them and taking advantage of them. That uh, came under control significantly as we became stronger. But as we're becoming weaker again, you see those despots rising up again. And we need to be a strong and just leader of the world. I think that that was the role that God designed for us. And that's my goal. A lot of people ask me, am I going to enter the political arena again? Uh, I don't intend to. Uh, I'll always do what God wants me to do, but I hope that's not it. Yeah, well, I would not wish that on anybody that I like, and I do like you, because it, it is a tough, tough way to, to, you know, I saw you when you were on the campaign trail, and you you were happy, you had a smile on your face, but it looks exhausting to run for office at that level. It is, so, and to have, you know, the, the media, which didn't bother me much at first, but then when I, when I hit front-runner status, you know, the lies just started proliferating all over the place. It's hard to keep up with them all. Well, I will save that for another segment, but I actually think we need a, a robust, unafraid media. I just wish they were fair. I think they'd be taken more seriously if they were fair. And, you know, and I beg myself not to do it because there's no reason to start your day being miserable, but I will go to some of the old you know, periodicals and magazines and websites that I used to go to in Congress. And even the way the headlines are framed, it, it is it, it is just not fair. No, and, it isn't. And, and I remember, you know, uh, as the HUD secretary, you know, they came out and said, Carson bought a $31,000 dining room table and he's trying to cut the budget and he should resign. He is unethical. And, uh, and then after the IG did their million dollar investigation for taxpayers a million bucks uh and saw that there was absolutely nothing not even a trace of wrongdoing did they say anything nope nope okay um but the worst thing about the media the only business protected by the united states constitution because they were supposed to disseminate fair unbiased information to the people so that the people would be able to have a will because we're supposed to run the country on the will of the people. But when they put their finger on the scale, you see what happens. And I wonder if they even realize that if we end up socialist or communist, what is the first thing that they do? Completely control the media. Do they know that they're burying themselves? I don't, I don't think they think further than their nose. Yeah, I, I, I think our culture needs a referee. Doc, I mean, I'd rather have a you know, I'd rather have a bad referee than no referee. You know, I can't imagine watching a sporting event. I mean, look, I, I don't agree with most of the holding calls against Dallas when they're playing football, but I think the referee is doing the best he can. Mm-hmm. I, I just the media is supposed to be a societal referee, and when you think the referee is actively pulling for the other team, it. Look, you know more about unfairness than I do. 
you, you, you've experienced it more than I have, but it does have an impact on you if you think the referee is unfair. It, it, it impacts you. It does. And, and they say they're not unfair, that they're just imperfect, and sometimes they make mistakes. It's just that all the mistakes seem to be yeah. on one. Yeah they, all, <laughs> yeah, they all go against the same team. All right, the book is coming out. Fascinating, man. If you believe in the power of education to change lives, then you'll like Ben Carson. If you like deep analytical work, asking hard questions, trying to figure out where we are as a country, where we're headed, and if you like it mixed in with a healthy dose of faith, then um, you probably already like Ben Carson. But if you if you don't know him yet, check out his book. Thank you for joining us. I love talking to you. And if I can ever do anything for you in South Carolina, then you're in a lot of trouble if you're relying on me. But if I can, you let me know, okay? Well, we appreciate you so much. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are looking for you to become a Supreme Court justice. That's how much respect they have for you. So thank you for well, what you They did not see my law school transcript, Doc. If they'd <laughs> seen my law school transcript, they would know I've already overshot where I should have been, but I, uh, I I did love the justice system much more than politics. And if it hadn't been for math or science, I would have been a, a doctor right there with you. My dad was a pediatrician. It was just when I flunked fractions, my dad just said, I don't think you're going to make it as a doctor. Just a matter of the teaching method that is used. Everybody's good at math. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to take your word for that. God bless you. Take care. I hope your wife wins y'all's next pool match. All right. Take care. Thanks. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. And thank you for joining us. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.